Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. And we are back with Dr. Tyler Jordan. He is a veterinarian and veterinary dermatologist. So just talking about dog skin, we're talking about itchy dogs today, but like what are things that dog owners can do preventatively to have like dogs with healthy skin? Obviously, like dogs don't have eye cream or lotions or anything. Like maybe people are wondering, are there supplements or, or things they should be doing to help their dogs have a healthy coat? Yeah. And that's a great question. And generally speaking, a normal dog, a dog that doesn't have pre-existing skin disease, just like a normal human doesn't need to have too much maintenance. You know, there's not a lot of daily sprays or creams for a dog that doesn't have a pre-existing skin problem. I think good rules of thumb are to make sure that an animal to maintain optimal health, There are so many minerals, nutrients, vitamins that are really critical to maintain a normal skin barrier. So making sure that an animal is on a diet that is complete and balanced. I think one problem that you can run into is if you're home cooking diets, if those are not appropriately balanced, they don't have enough fatty acids or zinc or vitamin A or whatever, then that is one area that we can run into problems. So making sure an animal is on a complete and balanced diet, either one that we know that has been appropriate formulated, or if you've consulted with a veterinary nutritionist to make sure that your home cooked diet is complete and balanced. Number one. Number two In the areas that I have practiced, so Ohio, California, I would also recommend that every animal is on appropriate flea control. You know, when I was working in Ohio and California, fleas were a year-round problem. And so that is another very easy practice that I think is a really, really good idea to get into because not only are fleas blood-sucking parasites that can transmit a lot of not-so-great bacterial infections, similar to ticks, but they're also a source of skin disease as well. And then for breeds of dog that I know are predisposed to developing skin diseases like atopic dermatitis, let's say your golden retrievers or German shepherds, cocker spaniels, those as well. When those dogs are early in life, I may start to positively reinforce certain things that you may or may not be doing late in life. And what I mean by that is for dogs with allergies, we're oftentimes recommending regular bathing, regular mm. ear cleaning to try and prevent recurrent yeast infections, prevent recurrent bacterial infections. And the best time to train that into a dog to accept those behaviors are when they're young. And so yes. trying to make that as positive an experience as possible, you know, maybe get into a habit of irrigating or flushing their ears once or twice a month, making sure that's a positive experience, always making sure they're getting a treat, not restraining them, not making it negative in any sense of the term. I recommend that more so again in breeds that I see a lot with skin disease. You know, if you have a 10-year-old Cocker Spaniel that's had pain in its ears its whole life, and you're now telling an owner that, you know, you have to start cleaning its ears regularly and the dog is not on board, training those behaviors early in life would be a good idea. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, we've had a lot of guests who are fear-free certified on our program. We've worked with Dr. Marty Becker. We really should, maybe we'll have an episode on bathing because yeah, there's so many little things you can do to make bathing a better experience for your dog. So that's a great suggestion. Okay, what about the environment? So we talked about food, obviously pollens and other things. Are there things in the home that can be a risk factor for some dogs? 
Yeah, another really great question. And one that I will say in humans and in dogs is somewhat controversial. So in humans with eczema, we know that over the past several decades, the prevalence of eczema has increased several fold over the past several decades. Mm -hmm. And people have proposed something called the hygiene hypothesis to Mm -hmm. describe why this is happening. So what this hypothesis states is that with increased levels of cleanliness or hygiene within the household, with increased rates of vaccination, you know, we are decreasing the number of microbes that a human is exposed to, <laughs> which certain microbes are important in the development of the immune system and removing that may promote the development of allergies. Now, this is not me saying, you know, dogs should yeah. not be on dewormers, dogs should not be vaccinated, yeah. because I think the risks of those behaviors far out way, you know, the development of allergies, only a very small percentage of dogs develop allergies. Good point. (laughs) And so they have been trying to look into potential associations, changes Mm -hmm. in lifestyle and environmental factors that may be associated with the development of allergies. These associations do not prove causation. There's no cause and effect. And so similar work has been done in dogs. So retrospective studies that have looked at potential environmental associations between dogs with allergies and like what environment they live in. It's been suggested that dogs that primarily live indoors, that live in urban environments, Mm -hmm. that live in households with high levels of cleanliness or are exposed to secondhand smoke may be at higher risk for developing atopic dermatitis. Now, again, this is not me telling your listeners to move to the country Maybe they should stop smoking, though. Okay, that I'm on board with. That I'm on board with. On the opposite side of the coin, dogs that live in rural environments, dogs that live outdoors, dogs that regularly walk through woodlands or have regular contact with other animals or live within families greater than two children are less likely to develop atopic dermatitis. Now, again, this does not prove cause and effect. These are just associations. We do not know what the relationship is between these two things. These are just observations that people have made. And this does not mean, you know, I strongly recommend dogs receive routine deworming, vaccinate because, you know, the opposite outcome would be suboptimal. But in terms of the environment, we also know that in certain dogs, their clinical signs fluctuate with season. You know, it's always worse in the spring and summer versus the fall and winter. And we know that dogs with atopic dermatitis also develop antibodies in their bloodstream against pollens from grasses, trees, house dust mites. So when we look at atopic dermatitis, if we take a step back and look at it more holistically, it seems like the environment definitely plays a significant role But what exactly that is, recognizing the environment may vary depending on, you know, what part of the country you live in, what part of the world you live in, and what breed of dog. So the environmental risk factors at this stage for dogs are unclear, but there does seem to be a component of the environment in how dogs get atopic dermatitis. What about emotional health? Like, let's talk about stress. Can that play a role? Yeah, that's another really interesting question. So in humans, in humans with atopic dermatitis, we know that the burden of having chronic eczema and the itch associated with that increases the likelihood that a human will develop mental health issues such as anxiety or depression. And the development of anxiety and depression in and of itself will exacerbate their signs of atopic dermatitis. And so the current thought is not so much that mental health causes atopic dermatitis, but that atopic dermatitis can result in mental health issues, which then exacerbates underlying atopic dermatitis symptoms. Very little has been 
reported in the literature when you look at dogs with atopic dermatitis. I was doing a quick lit search just to refresh, and there's only been really one study that has documented this. I would say one of the inherent challenges with exploring, you know, stress, anxiety, and the role it plays in animals is we can't lay a dog on a psychiatric bed and be like, so how are you feeling, (laughs) right? Like, like, I mean, I guess to their advantage, like, I mean, I know, like, for humans with skin issues, like, some of it is kind of like societal, you know, they can see you have a skin issue, right? You've got redness on your arms or whatever, and people feel self-conscious about it. And we can probably assume that dogs don't have that kind of like, oh, the other dogs have such beautiful fur, and like, I've got (laughs) patchy red scabs or whatever. So I think, well, I don't know what happens at dog shows, like what goes through their mind right before they're about to try to <laughs> like, I don't know what sure. happens, sure. but I agree. Yeah. yeah. What has been shown is that dogs with atopic dermatitis with higher levels of itch are more likely to express problematic behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I'm quoting this paper right now, including <laughs> mounting, chewing, hyperactivity, eating their own feces, begging for and stealing food, attention seeking, excitability, excessive grooming, which may just be itch associated with sure. atopic dermatitis and reduced trainability. But there hasn't really been anything that has been published that shows like once you treat atopic dermatitis, what happens to those behavioral aspects and how does that all fit into it? I mean, it's not uncommon pulling from my own experience, like dogs that come in with severe atopic dermatitis, severe infection, severe itch, they're oftentimes lethargic, not Mm -hmm. as energetic, they're not really interactive, and they can also experience some degree of weight loss, either associated with the increased energy expenditures with just like constantly scratching themselves. It's certainly, you know, not to anthropomorphize, but it's like, gosh, you know, it seems like this dog is not living his best life. So, sure. sure. At least the information that is out there, there's nothing out there right now to suggest that anxiety, stress will increase the likelihood of atopic dermatitis. If anything, that may be a sequela that may impact the underlying disease, but that has really not been explored too thoroughly, at least in the veterinary domain. Sure. Sure. I think there's at least like two or three more PhDs worth of of research to be done on this. (laughs) (laughs) While you are listening to The Good Dog Pod, we are here with Dr. Tyler Jordan, and we'll be right back with more about itchy dogs. Did you know breeders on Good Dog get $100 every year to spend on health testing and access to exclusive discounts from our partners, including Embark, Paw Print Genetics, and AKC Reunite? Click the link in the show notes to learn more about how you can access these special discounts and benefits today. So we know that some cases of atopic dermatitis are genetic, but there's not like a DNA test you can do for this at this time. So do you have any recommendations for our dog breeding community on how they can reduce dermatological issues in the puppies that they're creating and bringing out into the world? Another really good, reasonable, yet controversial question. So before I answer that, I will take a step back and say that dogs that develop clinical signs of atopic dermatitis, it's believed to result from complex interactions between animals' environment, which Mm -hmm. we already talked about, as well as certain genetic risk factors. So those both interact with one another and determine whether an animal develops signs of atopic dermatitis. And what I mean by that, you know, to provide an example, let's for sake of argument say you have a dog that has a genetic risk factor or increased risk due to the genetic makeup to develop an allergic reaction to cypress trees. But if that animal doesn't live in a part of the country where there are cypress trees, he's not going to show you any signs. So that's what I mean by there being an interaction between environment as well as genetics. 
And this is also a complex conversation in humans. So there's a few things that strongly suggest there is a genetic component. Number one, we see several breeds very, very, very commonly. Again, like golden retrievers, Labrador retrievers, German shepherds, West Highland white terriers, pit bull. Like we see these all the time. Yeah. And I don't really see Portuguese water dogs with atopic dermatitis. I don't really see, you know, greyhounds or whippets mm. with atopic dermatitis. Certainly there are likely they can, but the vast majority involve those breeds, which strongly suggests there's something in that breed's genetic makeup that increases the likelihood of them developing that disease. And then secondly, very few studies have shown that puppies that are born from mommy and daddy dogs if those parental dogs have atopic dermatitis, the puppies have an increased risk of having atopic dermatitis as well. But that, again, has not been really thoroughly investigated. There's been a number of genetic studies that have tried to identify a specific genetic marker, and there are genetic risk factors that mm. increase the likelihood of an animal developing atopic dermatitis, but there's not one single genetic mutation that has been identified that says every dog that gets this will develop atopic dermatitis. So you know, one doesn't necessarily go and do a PhD without having a certain interest in like evidence-based medicine. You know, I want to make recommendations that are based off of data, you know, show me the data. And unfortunately, when it comes to trying to establish breeding programs to eliminate skin problems, we don't have enough Mm. out there that I can say, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and this is going to be a test and proven strategy. The only thing that I can say is, Animals with skin disease, depending on the type of skin disease they have, if it is atopic dermatitis, there is a likelihood that they may pass that on to subsequent generations. But it's the type of disease that can skip generations. It won't pop up in every single puppy, and it may not pop up in every litter. But a dog that has underlying atopic dermatitis, the prevailing theory is that can be passed on to subsequent generations, but not every puppy, not every year. And so the only thing that I can say is if you know you have animals that you intend to breed that have been diagnosed with a chronic skin disease, those may not be the best dogs to use as breeders if you intend to eliminate that trait from your colony. The challenge there is that some dogs don't start showing signs until three years of age, in which case they may have already had several litters by that time. But that's a hard one. There's nothing out there that we can use or recommend to breeders that is tested and true to eliminate skin disease. The only thing that we're left with at current is to eliminate dogs with known skin diseases that they will have for their duration from the breeding stock, which is inherently limiting um, (laughs) because you sometimes don't know. Yep. Okay. Well, that's good advice. Staying within the boundaries of what little we know. And right. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. Okay. So you're currently doing research. I don't even think I want to try to pronounce this condition. So I'm just going to let you <laughs> tell yeah, us about yeah. your current research. No problem. So one of my PhD <laughs> projects is looking at a disease called pemphigus foliaceous, which is yeah a type of autoimmune skin disease that at least in the papers that we have seems to be overrepresented in the Akita and Chow Chow. Hmm. This is a disease that is well known in humans too. Although what we see in dogs is slightly different. It's an autoimmune skin disease where dogs develop 
for reasons we don't fully understand antibodies, their immune system produces antibodies that binds to and breaks down proteins in their skin that anchor skin cells to one another. We don't know exactly why this happens, but again, dogs with pemphigus foliaceus develop antibodies that bind to anchor proteins and result in them breaking down in an animal developing skin disease. And so what that looks like is Usually there's an acute onset. Dog will develop pustules, so skin lesions that are full of pus that can rupture, that result in crusting and erosions and sores, usually around the eyes, the face, the ears, and their paw pads can become really, really, really thick and painful. And this skin disease also, when it develops, dogs also usually have fever. They're not feeling well, not wanting to eat, fairly lethargic. And this is a skin disease that's diagnosed based off of skin biopsies, as well as clinical evaluation. And again, the problem is not that we can't recognize a disease. We know what the disease looks like. We've been recognizing it for many, many, many years. It was first described in the 70s. But the problem is, is we don't fully understand how and why it occurs. And as a result, the development of safer, more targeted treatments is hindered because that's all dependent on how the disease works. So what we're left with is using medications that broadly immunosuppress an animal. We're using medications to dampen the entire immune system rather than the specific part that is resulting in the autoimmune disease. Wow. So my that's kind patient, of a, a yeah. big hammer for a tiny nail or... Yeah, 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 right, right, exactly. My mentor, Dr. Stephen White, would often say like, oh, it's like trying to use a cannon to shoot a fly or something like exactly. that. Exactly, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're using big guns to suppress the entire immune system mm -hmm. when there's only theoretically a small part of that that is resulting in the issue. And as a result, animals need to be treated lifelong for that disease. Mm -hmm. And they also experience a number of adverse side effects from the treatments we're using to control the disease. Right. So the impetus for my PhD project was just to try and gain a better understanding of how the disease works in hopes that that may inform the development of more safer and specific drugs down the road. That's kind of like the, you know, the big picture. That's what I walked into the PhD wanting to do. And <laughs> yeah. going to change are, the world. <laughs> right, right, right. So we recruited a bunch of blood from dogs with pemphigus and control dogs, and we're just trying to get a better understanding of how the antibodies work and what exactly right. they're doing in the skin. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that research is still ongoing and... Still ongoing. We've yeah. recruited all of our dogs. Okay. We have enough sera, but that is still ongoing and hopefully we'll be able to publish some results within the next year or two. Great. Look forward to that. So on a side note, I mean, we've talked a lot about skin, but you've also done some really cool other work that I want to talk to. So... Can you tell us a little bit about the Community Veterinary Outreach Project that yeah, you're involved with? Absolutely. So Community Veterinary Outreach is a community-based charity that started in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. So that's where I'm from originally by Dr. Michelle Lem. It's a charitable organization that provides pro bono preventive care to the animals of those who are homeless and marginally housed. And I got involved in this charitable organization when I was in vet school. And so how this works is... Every couple months, Community Veterinary Outreach puts up a pro bono clinic, and all of the patients that are seen by the clinic are referred in by their respective social workers. And so my role in that charitable organization was not only to recruit additional veterinary students to volunteer at the clinics, but mm. I also had an active role at each of these 
community outreach clinics as well. So typically what would happen is a client, a pet owner and their animal would come in. And then myself as a veterinary student would gain hands-on experience, getting history, taking a physical exam. These animals would receive complimentary flea, tick and heartworm prevention. They'd get food. We would also be able to link these owners up with pro bono spay and neuter services, as well as dentistries. Um, And so, yeah, this is not only an opportunity for veterinary students to also gain hands-on clinical experience, but it's also an opportunity for people early on in their career to challenge preconceived notions that they have of a marginalized community. You know, many people come into these clinics thinking that these animals are not going to be well taken care of. They're going to be neglected. And what they realize is that for the vast majority of people that they interact with at these clinics, oftentimes animals for people that are homeless and marginally housed are sometimes the only positive relationships that they have in their life. Oftentimes they put the needs of their pet before their own and will seek out healthcare for their animal as opposed to themselves. Mm -hmm. And owning a pet will increase the likelihood that an individual will make more quote unquote responsible decisions. They'll abuse drugs and alcohol less frequently. They will seek out long-term housing if they have a pet to directly benefit the pet. So it's a really unique opportunity, not only, again, to gain clinical experience, but to have students break down these preconceived notions, but then yeah. also foster a future generation of individuals that will provide outreach to their community, to provide this service. And it was also a unique opportunity because these clinics, as over the duration I volunteered with them, became one health operations. And what I mean by that is we would leverage a pet owner's relationship with their animal. They would come into our clinic to get healthcare for their animal, but then we would also connect those individuals with a community health nurse to get vaccinated. We could connect them with a dental hygiene program such that they can get their needs addressed. We would connect them with smoking cessation materials. So we could leverage a pet owner's relationship with their pet. They're more willing to do for their pet than they are for themselves, but also connect them with social services that they may not have had access to before. So it was a really rewarding and meaningful experience in my training. And this is for those listeners that are interested in gaining more information on this charitable organization, they can go to vetoutreach.org. This charity, again, started by Dr. Michelle Lem, has spread across Canada. There's several clinics operating in numerous different cities and has also entered into the United States. And I believe the first clinic in the U.S. is in Kansas City. So real meaningful and important chapter in my training was interacting with that program. And I mean, just you're teaching students not only how to practice veterinary medicine, but how to be a contributor to your community when you're in your profession and to give back. So really meaningful work. Yeah, I love the One Health perspective. And also just, you know, I think, yeah, a lot of us maybe go into the field of working with animals with a perspective of what a good pet owner does or looks like. And so it's good when you see beyond like your own kind of limited blinders as to what that looks like. So we'll drop the link to Community Veterinary Outreach in our show notes so that people can find that link really easily. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think participating through these clinics, you know, people going into them have this question of should people who are homeless or marginally housed have pets? Should they be pet owners? But while you volunteer at that clinic, I think you walk out of there 
Like that is not the right question you should be asking. The question should be, should we have people who are homeless and marginally housed? Like you can't help pets without helping their owners and vice versa. So yeah, thank you for dropping that. Happy that people will gain more understanding or information with respect to that charitable organization. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. You've been so generous yeah. with your time. This has been really fascinating. I feel like we could probably listen to you talk about skin all day. Um, so many other things that we could talk about. But I do like to end on you know kind of a fun note. And I know we chat a little bit online before and you did say you had a cat who passed away recently. So yeah. You don't have any pets yeah. right now. And she yeah. had skin issues. So yeah, Gretchen. Had personal her, experience. Her, her social hashtag was Gretch my batch. For anyone that wants to see photos of her on Instagram. Yeah, but <laughs> okay, she, nice. I had a 20 year old cat with chronic skin disease, which I didn't recognize at the time when I was going through vet school. But yeah, we recently had to say goodbye to her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And are you online anywhere where people can check you out? Uh, yeah, I have my LinkedIn. To share? My <laughs> yeah. LinkedIn. Okay, nice. <laughs> my LinkedIn. Yeah, nice. you can okay, check good. me out on LinkedIn. Good. But I think the fun question was, what breed of dog would I be? And I actually yeah. th- was taking a long time to think about this, right? And okay. so I have like a top three. I want to know if there are any of the ones that have chronic, like tend to have more skin issues. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say that my decisions are completely biased by the animals I see in the clinic every day and the temperaments that I eat. And so I grew up with Portuguese water dogs. And so that is, that will forever be a breed that I always gravitate towards. And then based off of my experience in the clinic, I love pit bulls, love pit bull bully breeds. I think that they are some of the most misunderstood, misrepresented and kindest dogs that I have interacted with, but also have like the worst atopic (laughs) dermatitis I've had to manage. (laughs) And then I'd also throw a basset hound in there too, just because I've interacted with a lot of basset hounds with both allergies as well as chronic ear problems. And they're just a really lovely breed. And I've also interacted with a number of breeders that have sent me many Christmas cards with their basset hounds and various getups. So um, (laughs) those would be my top three that I would be hard pressed to make a decision between. Okay, well, we'll accept your top three. (laughs) Okay, okay, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. It was really fun chatting with you. And yeah, maybe we'll have you back on when your study results are published and we can learn. Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. (laughs) 